When it comes to how we show up on stage and on screen as public speakers and entrepreneurs and coaches just trying to get our ideas out there, there are so many places to pull ideas from. We can borrow from theater, from Broadway, from film, from politics, from you name it, anywhere where people are responsible for sharing ideas. And I've heard lots of folks talk about the way that stand-up comedians share their thoughts. And now with so many stand-up comedians having hour-long specials and the streamers having entire libraries of specials, I was curious of what there was to learn about stand-up comedians. And I also was really curious when I found out that there were people who directed shows. And not just shows like the ones you see on Netflix, but like hour-long comedic specials that you're seeing in your town or places like the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And so when I was talking to Caroline Goida way back in episode 27 of The Mic Drop Moment, she's a fabulous multi-time author and voice coach out of the UK, she introduced me to a guy named Chris Head. Chris is the stand-up director, comedy director, who she had worked with on her TEDx talk. And so I was curious, how did he, as a stand-up director, approach coaching someone for a TEDx talk? Maybe what was similar about the way that I work with people and what was different. And so this is kind of one of the very first times I've ever had someone who does something similar to what I do on the show. And I'm so glad I did. In this episode with Chris, I'm going to be talking about storytelling, of humor, about the power of contrast. Maybe a whole new take on the whole idea behind show and not tell. We also talk about having a plan A and a plan B when it comes to audience participation. And you'll hear a little bit about how Caroline Goida did that in her fabulous TEDx talk, which has like over 9 million views at this point. He also talks about the difference between the aha moment and the haha moment when it comes to speaking. And then he does a brilliant job towards the end of the episode, breaking down the archetypes of someone on stage. And then he actually like does that for me. So you can hear what he thinks about me. It's a pretty fabulous talk, and if you're responsible for sharing ideas with other people, you're going to want to listen. If you're interested in learning more about Chris, you can head over to chrishead.com. You can also find his books, Creating Comedy Narratives for Stage and Screen, and A Director's Guide to the Art of Stand-Up, wherever you grab books. Let's dive in. So you have a story to tell, and you wonder how to own the stage and give that killer speech that will captivate the masses. You don't just want to speak to them. You want to transform your audience. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment. Bold conversations about public speaking, storytelling, and business that give you real-world valuable takeaways so you can craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your mic drop moment. Here is your host, Mike Ganino. I think it's pretty common to hear about there being a director for a theater production or being a director for, you know, I'm from the improv world. So we had directors for our sketch comedy shows at Second City and Improv Olympic. But it's not. It seems rare. It seemed, I was a little surprised when I thought of it because I realized, yeah, there's a director for like a Netflix special for, for Amy Schumer's Netflix special. There'll be a director. But I didn't really think of stand up comedians having a director. So how did you how did you get into directing stand up comedians? Well, there's a few of us doing it. And really, it began uh, because of the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, so the Edinburgh Fringe festival one of the biggest arts festivals in the world huge numbers of comedy shows and certainly in in the uk 
uh, there's been a desire to have a show that feels like a show that's got a beginning, a middle, an end, has got a story arc, maybe has got some drama, perhaps is using props or music, just making stand-up feel like a show rather than a long club set you know, when it's in a festival. And as soon as you start thinking like that, you're kind of thinking in a bit more of a theatrical way. And then people started to think, huh, I could actually do with some outside eyes on this. and I, I could do with someone directing this. And th- that's really where stand-up directing began. And did you have a background as a, were you a stand-up comedian? Like before you got into that, were you doing stand-up comedy? Were you directing other types of theater? Were you, were you writing? Uh, well, I was doing all of those things. <laughs> um, and I think probably spreading myself too thin because I really was doing all of those things. Um, but it's turned out to be really great because now I'm on, I'm kind of a bit of a, sh- I'm a bit of a shadowy figure. Um, <laughs> I'm not front and center. People don't even know that I was involved in shows most of the time. Uh, yeah. So w- when you're talking about a director of a, of a movie, they're like one of the main faces of the of the production and they can be almost as famous as the the actors but when you're talking about the director of a stand-up show they're these kind of obscure slightly anonymous figures and if you've done your job properly nobody should know that there was a director you know you're trying to get to this point where it feels absolutely spontaneous so it's it's very crafted rehearsed shaped considered and yet it looks off the cuff so if anyone thought oh that was well directed that means i've not not done my job properly <laughs> it's it's the um it's kind of like with great acting whenever whenever and especially even with improv when when we look at it it's it's when the absence of any visible work when it yeah. doesn't look like they're working at all and so i know in the past when i when i would be on stage and i'd be really thinking my my coach uh my my improv coach would say i could see you working and yeah. it's like ah that was like the worst <laughs> the worst thing to say to a performer is i could see the work you know yeah. you want it to kind of just fold so so was there a point where you said, okay, you know what? The directing side is for me. Cause you, you were teaching classes, you were doing private coaching for people in this you've expanded and, and we'll dive into this. I want to talk quite a bit about this later into coaching people who are not necessarily just doing stand up, but could use some of the ideas from stand up public speakers and people giving presentations. So what was the point where you decided, you know what? I really dig this specific little sliver of performance, the the directing side. Well, it's a really good way of putting it. So I, I continue to coach and teach, and it, that that works really well with directing because it's the, the same kind of skill set. Really, you're facilitating something, you're bringing something out. Um, but when I was performing, um, I was clearly enough of an exhibitionist to want to get up to perform, but I actually didn't feel like I had a massive need to do it, and. I found the first time I got to direct something, I found that so satisfying to have have the overview of the whole piece. And then, in fact, I found I really enjoyed sitting with the audience and watching it. And I thought, oh, I really like I really like this side. And and on a pragmatic level, I think 
in terms of my writing and performing comedy, I certainly was semi-professional, but whether I could earn a good living, I, I don't know. But I discovered that people were willing to pay me for my expertise directing and coaching. And so pragmatically, you know, going where the money was kind of made sense. But but it was great because I actually loved it. I found I had a real enthusiasm and really liked that side of it. Yeah. And so what have been some of the uh what have been some of the big highlights in that? Like what are what are some of the the shows or or performers that you've worked with you were like, oh this was a really when I sat out in that audience and watched that performance, I was like, boom, that was a mic drop moment there. Yes. Yeah, well there's a lot that I could I could reference, but uh, what I'm going to what I'm going to reference is um, a little bit more in the. It was definitely a comedy show, but a bit more in the kind of speaking space because the performer also had an educational intent and wanted the audience to learn stuff. Uh, so he's a guy called Matt Parker, and he's the author of a book called Humble Pie, which is P I, so it's a pun, as in the, the mathematical concept. And it's uh, it's a book about mathematical mistakes and kind of real world consequences, and it's a funny book. And Matt is a uh, he's a stand up mathematician. He does stand up comedy too, and in fact, he got started on my stand up classes in London. But what was great about this show is um, all of the kind of the tricks and the fun we we had with it, because he's a he's a great speaker and he can hold an audience for an hour just by talking to them but we wanted it to be more than just a, a book tour we wanted it to be a show and um one of the themes of the book is that uh, computers keep time by counting down and they'd start with like a massively high number and then they count down and they have this process for keeping time and when they get to zero things crash uh so including computer systems on aeroplanes they'll crash if they get to zero um and so the way to avoid that is literally to turn the plane off and on again incredibly um so there was this whole thread in the book and there was a few there was quite a few examples of things crashing when the computer countdown gets to zero uh and we thought well there's a thing in, certainly people talk about it in improv and they talk about it in creative writing, show, not tell. And we thought, okay, how could we show something crashing? And so we had this idea that the whole show would crash. So we needed to have a, a timer built into the show. And in order to justify that, at the edit, so this was the Edinburgh Fringe and then went on tour. Um, and certainly in the Edinburgh Fringe, the slots are very tight and you can't overrun your, your hour-long slot. So to justify there being a timer, Matt said, I cannot overrun the slot. You know, I'm so enthusiastic. Sometimes I get carried away. I've got to keep my eye on the time. So I've got this countdown timer. And then... Uh, so that's the way he made it made sense to the audience, was yeah. let me announce why this is here. Yes. Great. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, so there's a why. And so they go, okay, that's why that's there. And then they stop thinking about it. And the great thing was that even though some significant parts of the content were about things getting to zero and crashing, for some reason, no one made the connection with this timer on stage that's going down. And then, so we created this moment where it hits zero and then the whole show crashes. And we thought, okay, well, what does that mean for a show to crash? 
So obviously the lights go down, the sound fails. He's got a screen that goes all kind of staticky. Uh, he even had some lasers. They start going haywire. And there was one really wonderful thing uh, as part of that, uh, which is um, uh, Matt was wearing a T-shirt that had a logo uh, that was related to his work on the on the T-shirt, and he even referenced it earlier on. So you go, oh yeah, there's a t- there's a T-shirt with his his logo on. And at the moment that the show crashed, he's going around the stage, he's going, oh my god, this has crashed, that's crashed. And then he looks down and he goes, even my T-shirt has crashed. And then suddenly the audience look at it and they realize this logo has got all scrambled. And they're like going, what? How did how did that happen? And the, the, the wonderful thing was that um, Matt and I, we've worked on a few shows and we like involving magic in the shows, but not in a way that anyone would notice. You don't go, ta-da, there's a trick. Right. But Matt talked to some magicians and said, we want the T-shirt to crash. How can you... How can we make that happen? And what the magicians and Matt came up with was the the T-shirt had like a fake front with the proper logo on, and it was attached by magnets. So not Velcro, because it's magnets are silent. And he's got he's got a, a suit jacket on, so it looks just like a normal T-shirt. And when the show's crashing, he goes like slightly off stage, apparently to fiddle around with you know dials and switches but in fact when he goes off stage he's taking the false front of the t-shirt off and then revealing the real t-shirt which is the same logo but all scrambled but the audience don't notice he comes out and he's now the scrambled logo is in plain sight but they don't notice until he tells them to notice they looks down and goes oh my god even my t-shirt's crashed and then they're noticed for the first time and so that that was a, a real a real highlight, kind of just playing around with all the possibilities of a of a live show. I love that. Was it an hour long show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so it's so interesting to me because so many a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast will be people who are uh, giving speeches or doing you know like a webinar, doing a workshop online these days, and we often forget that that hour long format is a really long time for an audience. Like if you think about it, that's that's the length of like two half hour sitcoms, two whole sitcoms or yeah. one hour of like a really deep, deep, uh, you know, drama. And yet we, we think we can just hold people's attention if we talk to them for an hour. So yeah. I love this idea of, of Matt saying, well, wait a second, I'm not just going to talk to them for an hour. We've got to re and I'm not just going to be funny for an hour. I'm not just going to talk about my book for an hour. We've got to really show them this work. I love that. That's so creative. Yeah. And so when you're working on a piece like that, how much as a director, when you go in, are you saying, okay, come in with all your all your bits written, everything down, and then I'm just going to give you adjustments versus how much are you really creating the show together? It's definitely co-created. Uh but it's also, as you said, what have you got? What are all of the things that you could say or talk about? So you've got this huge mass of stuff. And in Matt's case, we had the, the entire book, which is way too much. But you're going, okay, <laughs> here is all of the stuff. And so how are we going to select and craft and, and shape this this hour of speaking? Oh, 
do you think that it's do you think that it's often harder to to do that where you take someone's full length book and say what do we what do we not include versus sitting down with a blank slate and saying what do you want to say here in your talk do you do you have what which one do you think is easier from a director's perspective well the, the actually the question that i always start with is why are you doing this and there's there's the surface why which in matt's case is I mean, he loves doing it. He'll make money from the tour. He'll sell books. So, but that's that's not a very interesting why. So that, then you you try and drill down and find find the deeper why. And so in in Matt's case, it's wanting the audience to realise how much clever maths underlies our everyday lives that we don't even realise is there. And you think, okay, oh well, and, and specifically with this show, how easily it can go wrong and how 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 much um how much work goes into making sure it doesn't go wrong um and so okay that's that's why you're doing the show so now what material supports that why and did you do you do you find so so let's talk about let's kind of talk about when you worked with caroline goida so she's going to give a TEDx speech that was that was the premise there and she had a very small amount of time do you did you when you're working with her on that TEDx speech which again I've never heard of somebody working with a a a director of stand-up for a TEDx speech and when she mentioned it in episode uh 27 of this show I thought because oh, you know being being a performer and being on the the improv side of things and sketch side I certainly thought Oh yeah, that I get why that would be so helpful. But when she mentioned it from her speech perspective, I thought, how genius. Because it's so easy to find people who know how to help you give a speech. But somebody who says, okay, let's really think about this from a not putting in haha jokes necessarily, but thinking of the structure of stand-up and why so much stand-up is story-based. So when you worked with Caroline on her TEDx speech, how was that process different than working with someone like Matt on like a full-length kind of hour-long tour tour bit? How were those how did you approach those differently? Um it is the same the same kind of process really, just in a smaller amount of space. You know, what is it you want to say? Why are you saying it? What shape is it going to take? And also who are you within this? What's your what's your personality and what's your tone of voice and style and how can we draw that out and maximize that? Um, but something for, so thinking about working with Caroline, uh, a big thing from stand up or any kind of storytelling or joke telling is, is knowing what this thing is building to. It's so, so important. As soon as you open your mouth, you know what this is building to. And so the starting point with, Caroline was thinking well globally in terms of this whole talk that's going to be about 20 minutes what is this building up to and we actually spent a lot of time thinking about the payoff to the whole talk and of course as pe- as people were, will be aware um TED talks there's often something kind of counterintuitive or paradoxical you know they thrive on that kind of thing so we kind of set ourselves a task thinking okay the payoff has got to be something paradoxical or counterintuitive about speaking what what could that be and so then we were talking about the elements of speaking 
and Caroline was talking about the importance of breath and breathing. And from a comedy point of view, I'm very hot on pauses and timing. And it suddenly became evident that the really important part or the overlooked part are the parts where you're not actually speaking at all. And so, thought, okay, here's something. The idea that the important bit of speaking are the bits when you're not speaking. Well, <laughs> and how can we how can we nail that in a in a really succinct way? And in the end, we boiled it down to a line: If you want confidence in speech, it's all about knowing when to shut your mouth. And so we we had that. We thought, okay, we now know what this is building up to. So we've got our punchline, and. So then you go, okay, how do we take the audience there? And as you as you map that, I mean, it makes so much sense. And I think that so often people in, you know, if you're listening to the show and you're someone who's designing a webinar, you're designing even even a podcast interview, I, I think I approach it similarly to to how you're saying, Chris. Mm. It's it's such an interesting thing because it's difficult to know, especially when you have all the world, right? You have 20 minutes for a, a TEDx speech. You have two hours for a webinar. You have all day for a workshop. Whatever you're doing, you're, you have an hour long for a speech that you're building. You have all of the world's information you can include. You have everything you've ever experienced, every story you've ever lived that you can include in that. And so I love this idea that you're saying of like, what's the... What's the revelation here? Where are we pointing this towards? Because in some ways that helps you figure out when you have an unlimited resource to tap, it allows you to figure out like what would serve that versus what are all the things I could tell them, doesn't it? Yeah, precisely. Yeah, then everything becomes in service of building to that that point. It's such an interesting piece. So so I want to I, I, I want to explore this a little bit. So when you've worked with... When you work with someone who is giving uh, a speech, who who maybe isn't doing a an hour long, um, an hour long bit at the Edinburgh Fringe, which by the way, I'm so jealous. I want to one do a show there someday. When I do, I'm going to work with you for sure. Yes, and, correct. Uh, and I just want to attend. I, I've been to Edinburgh, but not during Fringe, and I, I've done Fringe here in 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 different places I've attended and, and uh, I, I really want to do that. So I'm so jealous that you've, uh, you've been there and, and one day I am going to come hire you to work with me and, and direct, direct a show there. But I, I want to think about when you're working with someone who is giving a, a speech, a talk, what are the ways that you approach it when the goal isn't comedy, when the goal isn't, cause, cause I want the people listening to think, okay, wait, I can learn. Cause I bring a lot of, theater into the work I do with with people on presentations and speaking. And I bring a lot of improv into it, obviously. I bring a lot of performance, of on-camera performance, that kind of thing. Mm. And I want people to really think about the work of stand-up is not, if, if they were working with someone like you, it's not about finding the joke. It's about looking at the overall structure. So when you're approaching a speech, when you're working with someone on a, on a talk that they're going to give, how do you approach it the same as a as a comedy piece? How do you approach it differently as a comedy piece? I'm curious about your process there because I feel like there's so much to learn from from the way you direct a a comedic piece for the rest of us. Yes. Okay. Um, well, let's take a, an example of a short section from Caroline's TED talk. Uh, it's a section about the diaphragm and the whole way we approached it was from a very stand up 
point of view. Uh, so first of all, stand-ups are very conversational medium. And qu quite often speakers might say something like, um, uh, I don't imagine uh, that many of you think about your diaphragm much. So they, they might say that. And what I always say is, well, they're, they're there in front of you. You can easily find out if, if they do, you know, or not. Don't make that assumption. And so the first thing was we, we built in a question. We wanted to find out where the audience were at on this topic. Uh, but we also wanted the question just to have a little bit of playfulness in it. And so the question we came up with that Caroline asks the audience at the start of the diaphragm section is... Thank you very much, diaphragm. It is indeed your diaphragm. Now put your hands up if you have thought about the diaphragm recently. If you Put your hands up if you've thought about your diaphragm today. And then so pe people laugh and they start to look around. <laughs> and, and then when you're planning it, you think, okay, well, what if some hands go up? And what if no hands go up? Because th those are the two possibilities. Uh, and in fact, that's how it's framed, hands up, hands up, if you thought about uh, your diaphragm in the last 24 hours. And so as it happens, smattering of hands went up. And then the line that we had prepared in advance for her to say... Thank you, singers in the room. Good. Or actors. Or saxophonists. But then there's also plan B, that what if nobody puts their hand up from the get-go? Put your hands up if you haven't yet thought about your diaphragm today. <laughs> so you've, you've got the question, you're making it conversational, and you're also thinking, okay, what if A and what if B? So you've got, you've got responses already built into it. Then the, uh, the sorry, the, the, next, the next part of that uh, section about the diaphragm is um, Caroline then wanted to tell the story about when she really connected to her own diaphragm which was, um, so she'd learned about it as a theory, uh, but when she really connected to it physically was in a, in a yoga class. And so something that you're doing in stand-up with stories is stand-up stories are full of act-outs. So it's that whole showing, not telling thing. So in your story, you want to hear people speaking. You want, you want dialogue, you want action in the story. Now, I didn't know anything about my diaphragm. I'd learnt about it. I knew what it was supposed to look like, but I didn't know how it felt. And then one day, I was feeling really stressed. I was breathing up in my chest. You know, I had that kind of squeaky, high-voiced adrenaline breathing up in the chest. Not good. And I walked into a yoga class, and the yoga teacher said, you look really stressed, which is never a good start. He said, lie down on the floor. And he lay me down and I closed my eyes expecting some lovely relaxing yoga thing and suddenly he put a gym weight on my stomach and he said, breathe, lift that. And I did. I breathed in. And as I breathed in, I had to lift that gym weight with my stomach and my diaphragm shuddered into action. And suddenly I got it. I got how it should feel. I got that I didn't need to breathe up here anymore, that I could breathe down. And I'd like to suggest that the diaphragm is the king of confidence. So should we find yours? But then there's something in stand-up um, that's called uh, misdirection, which is uh, leading the audience to have one expectation uh, that's the wrong expectation, and then you surprise them with where it's actually going. 
So the story that Caroline's telling, if, if you just told it in normal life without thinking about it, you might go, you won't believe what happened when I went to this yoga class. Oh, unbelievable. It was such a shock, right? I just, just lay down on the floor. Then the yoga teacher, he suddenly comes over and he drops this massive weight on my stomach. What the hell is this? So that is like a quite a normal way to tell the story. But from a stand-up point of view, you want to hide where it's going. So the, the payoff is that you get this weight dropped on your stomach. That's the payoff to that moment. But you want to hide where it's going. So, so you know, so you say something like, uh, so I got my, I rolled my mat out. I thought, this is lovely. I'm going to have a really lovely, relaxing yoga class. It's going to just chill me out. Uh, so the teacher said, lie down, you know, get in touch with your breath. Suddenly he dropped a weight on my stomach. And so you see the difference. It's, it becomes set up payoff. You set it up in a way that misdirects. You're talking about it like it's going to be really relaxing. So then when you get to the payoff, he dropped a weight on your stomach. Suddenly that's got a lot of, a lot of impact. And it's, it's not a ha-ha moment, uh, but it's what I would, would call an aha moment. You know, this is a significant piece of information. And then she goes on that the yoga teacher says, now breathe into breathe into that weight, lift that weight with your in-breath. So again, we're hearing the yoga teacher talk, and she says, uh, and that's when I felt my diaphragm. That's when I got in contact with it. And so that whole that whole story it's not intended to be a funny story, but it's got all of those stand-up things in it, like asking a question, making it conversational, reliving a situation, having act-outs in it, dialogue, finding the moment of surprise, setting something up, paying it off, using misdirection. And so it's those ways that stand-up techniques can come into speaking. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. One of, the, one of the things that I always think about is, is as a speaker – you know, this there's this idea in theater for folks that are listening who aren't theater people of called breaking the fourth wall. And essentially, if you think of a theater or you think of even a, a television or movie sh a movie that you're watching, the fourth wall is that space between you and the audience where you don't uh, where you where you suspend disbelief to say, of course, they can't see me and they know, you know, that kind of thing. So they're not talking directly to you. And it feels like kind of with stand-up, the job is to have the fourth wall down the whole time. Is that fair to say, Chris? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think as soon as you're asking people to come into a room and be with you, you've got to answer the question of why you've done that, you know, when they could so easily experience the content in other ways. And so if you're just speaking to them in the exact same way they could see you talking on a video, what's the point in them being there? And so that's where there's no fourth wall, you have to be connecting to the people who who are there. That's what makes it live. And so the start of uh, Caroline's talk, um, stand-up comedy, uh, you always want to start with the now. It, you want to bring it to the present with, with stand-up. Uh, so to give you a, for instance, when I'm teaching stand-up, uh, there's a Kevin Hart clip that I show. Uh, he tells a great story about how uh, when he was at school, his mother gave him permission to swear to swear at the teacher, to, to put it briefly. 
But he gets into that story by saying, uh, the other day, my daughter swore for the first time, uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't make a big deal out of it because I remember what I was like when I was a child. And then he tells the story. So he starts with now, why is this on my mind now? And then goes back in time, which is a strongly stand-up way uh, of approaching things. And so when we were thinking about Caroline's talk, you know, I was saying to her, we've got to start with the present moment. We've got to start with now. And and then she said, well, it's all about this moment, she said to me in conversation. It's all about that moment when you start and there are the audience looking at you and you're just starting to speak and all of the nerves in that moment. And I thought, well, that's brilliant. So that that's literally, it's not even this thing happened recently or I thought about this on the way there. This is this very moment right here. It's this moment, she says, uh, at the start. It's this moment, isn't it? I'm looking at you, and you look like a really nice bunch. There's been such great energy. I was sitting here for five minutes, and it just feels great, this room. And you look really friendly and up for it, so thank you. <laughs> and you're looking a bit unsure. You know, voice coach, don't worry, it's going to be fine. And I can see a couple of really brainy Ted faces there. And there's going to be a few ideas too. One is it just helps to be positive. Uh, that's always going to be good. Uh, so she says to the audience, you look like a nice bunch. There's such a good energy in the room. And uh, it was a tip. Uh, I, there's a, um, a compare, an MC called Jeff Whiting, uh, who works in the UK and around Europe, although he's, he has gigged in the States too. And he's done over uh, 5,000 gigs as a compare. Um, so he's got a lot of experience uh, working audiences, working the room. And I remember he said to me once that the audience become what you tell them they are. And so he said when he's got a gig where the audience don't look up for it, they look in a bit of a mood or they look a bit unpleasant and he feels a bit uncomfortable – He'll make a point of going on stage and going, well, you look great. I've heard good things about this room. This is going to be a really nice gig. You look like such a lovely crowd. He says, because they become that, they start to think, oh, yeah, we are actually. We're, we're an all right bunch. Yeah, no, he's right. And gradually they thaw. And whereas he says in comedy, quite often uh, an MC will go for, will get the easy laugh of going, oh, my God, you look like a miserable bunch. You know, well, you come to a comedy show and you sit there with faces like that. But that's just reinforcing it. So he goes the the opposite way. So simply coming out and going, you look like a nice bunch. There's such a good energy in the room. They're starting to become that because you're telling them that that's what they are. Then the other element about that um, opening, uh, and it's absolutely breaking the fourth wall within the first few minutes, is reflecting the audience back to themselves. And so we, we agreed, me and Caroline, that she would pick out three people in the audience. And so we always knew that she would pick someone who looked friendly. We'd pick someone who looked a bit unsure. So like someone with their arms folded, maybe. We'd pick, pick somebody who looked clever. So she knows that she's looking for those people. And it's just reflecting the audience back to themselves. It's that breaking the fourth wall. 
And there's this there's this requirement almost it feels at the at the beginning of your book, uh, which which I devoured because I just mm-hmm. kept reading it and thinking ah, uh, there were parts of it where I just agreed with you and I was like yes yes that's exactly true and there were other parts where I said oh that's helpful and then there were other parts Chris where I said oh wait a second that's exactly what I do and I didn't even know I was doing it or that's exactly why I like those kinds of shows or those kinds of speakers or performers and so it was really everyone should grab a copy of the book and and I'll share with everybody where to get that but a director's guide to the art of stand-up you start the book off talking about I made this link as I was reading it. At the beginning of the book, one of the very first chapters talks about directing the persona. So creating like, what is that version of you on the stage? And then later you write about, uh, you write about the idea of directing stand-up versus theater. And there's this great line in here uh, from, or this great quote in here from a performer who says, as an actor, she does what the director tells her, that it's the director's show. The director is the one who's gathered the cast. I mean, you, you said at the beginning of this show that so often in film and even theater, we'll know the director's name. But often for stand-up, for for those types of things, we don't know the director's name because it isn't really about the director themselves. It's about the actor's or the performer's choice. And so uh, she says in here that, you know, as an actress, her job, as an actor, her job is to do what the director is is saying to say okay great this is what you're trying to produce but as a stand-up and i think this is the same as a public speaker a storyteller an executive who's giving a message it's it's that person's vision it's that person's voice and so i was going back and forth between that part and and recognizing the the common theme to public speaking when it comes to directing public speaking versus a theater show and also this idea of creating your persona and so can you speak a little bit about how does one go about creating a persona that's also true to them so that when they walk out, they break the fourth wall, they connect with the audience. It says some truthful version of them versus, you know, them kind of having to be a great actor. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really important that it's true to you. And it's really important that you're not trying to be something that you aren't. And so when people approach speaking, when they approach stand-up, um, sometimes people think, oh, people who are successful at this are really confident and really charismatic, uh, and therefore I should be confident and charismatic. If you are that, well, great. But if you're, if you're kind of awkward and nerdy, if you try and be confident and charismatic, it's not going to look right. It's going to look awkward. It's not going to feel authentic. So the brilliant thing of about stand-up, and it completely applies to speaking, is that you can be awkward and nerdy. And if you embrace that and you own that and then you make that your thing, then that can be brilliant to listen to because it's authentic. And so as a director, when you're, when you're starting to work with someone uh, – how do you go about, you know, like say that you were working with someone, uh, someone like Caroline or someone on a, a speech or a talk or a big presentation, how do you go about helping them tune into that? Because it seems like sometimes we're not even aware that uh, maybe people struggle to bring that out or what have you found in your experience as a director? Can you talk a little bit about how you tap into that persona and help them bring it out? Yeah, there's, there's a few different tools. Um, one I'm going to talk you through uh, is using archetypes. 
And these are the uh, the 12 Jungian archetypes. Uh, there's a few different versions of them you can find uh, online. Uh, but there's kind of 12... They're the same, but they, they give them slightly different names. Uh, but these 12, I'm going to take you through them, and I'm going to say a little bit about each of these archetypes. And then when you've got someone in front of you, uh, what I find really helpful is um, assigning two archetypes to that that person, because then you've got, got two things in in friction. You've got this kind of mix of qualities that's more interesting than just saying your one thing. Um, so the archetypes, uh, the innocent, self-explanatory, uh, the regular person. So are you just a relatable, regular person? The third one is the crusader. So are you on a mission? Uh, have you got something to say that's you want to change the world in some way? Well, then you're a crusader. Uh, then there's the caregiver. Uh, so that you're you've got concern for your audience, you're sort of loving. Uh, there's the explorer, you're really investigating things, going deep into a subject. It could be exploring the world or it could be a topic. The rebel, so again, self-explanatory, that rule-breaking character. Uh, the sensualist, which is the, char the, the character type, the archetype that really enjoys the pleasures of the flesh or um, food and drink, that, that sensualist quality. Uh, the creator, the person who is really imaginative and is bringing surprising elements. So, for example, anyone who's bringing... Uh, like music or art or they've made props or, you know, there's that creativity behind their performance. The jester, again, self-explanatory. That's someone who's making jokes. Uh, the sage, that's like the wise person. So the magician, that's an interesting one. Um, so that that's the person who can create transformations or can make things happen that you can't explain. So Matt Parker's got a bit of the magician about him. And in fact, we, we talked about how literally we brought some magic into his show. Uh, and then there's the ruler, which is the, um, well, the, the alpha, the alpha person. So when you're, when you're looking at somebody, um, you're thinking, okay, what, what are they, what are their archetypes? Um, so I'm going to think about you, uh, Mike. Um, so I, I, I don't know you massively well, but I'm getting to know you um, through listening to your podcasts and through our, our conversation uh, here today. And um, I'm thinking that you're an explorer uh, just because of this. You re you're really diving into the world of speaking. It is a massive uh, exploration for you. And then in terms of the other one, possibly a crusader. So I might say you're a crusader explorer. You've got this crusading thing. You know, you want people to be better speakers. You're exploring the world of speaking. So, okay, so Mike, he's, he's like a, a crusader uh, explorer. And that, so that's the kind of, that's the energy we're, we're, we're after and then you've got those two kinds of registers in that you can be crusading and passionate about improving speaking and then you're going into the other register of 
well, and I, I wanted to find out more about this, and I spoke to this person, and I investigated that. So, so you're starting to find who they are through archetypes. And so another aspect of persona is status. And people in comedy commonly talk about high-status comedians, low-status comedians. So the high-status comic is sharper than the audience really intelligent, really smart. You know, the low status is a bit of a klutz, messing things up, getting things wrong. But there's also in the middle what I call uh, audience's mate. And when they're on stage, they just feel like you're, they're a friend of yours. They're on the same level as the audience. So in terms of your status, Mike, I see you as a mate. You know, you've got this really friendly energy. So you're not being super high status, intimidating, really learned. You're not playing the fool. You just you're feeling like the friend of the the audience. So I would say you're that uh, explorer crusader, and you're the the mate of the audience. And so then that feeds into what you wear. You know, you you if you're high status, then you might be wearing a suit, looking really smart. If you're low status, it could be quite scruffy or, or ill-fitting uh, or just wrong, in, mismatched in some way. If you're a mate, it's going to be casual, the kind of thing the audience will wear. But also because you're an explorer crusader, there could be something that, that touches on that. So you might be literally wearing something that um, suggests an explorer or you might might have something about your look that's kind of crusading. So what, what what is it that you? So with your podcast, of course, we don't see you. But when you're when you're talking in person, what what is it that you you tend to wear, Mike? Well, I think it's I think I, I'm sitting over here. Uh, nobody could see me, but my my jaw is kind of like open and shocked because. <laughs> You know, you've said I'm an explorer, and I if you saw my office, you would see I have every book about public speaking, about speech writing, about theater, about um, about all of the things related to this. And I've never, Chris, never heard anyone say it like this. And it makes so much sense because this extends beyond just just what we say and how we say it to our entire brands as performers. And so, I don't know what you are, but to me, you said one of them was a magician. You're feeling like a magician to me right now, or at right. least like a sage of some sort. Yes. Um, yeah, my my whole persona, I'm very, you're right, I'm very, very thoughtful about all of those elements, and I've never thought of it that way. So my idea before I go on stage, every time I give a speech, every time I record a podcast, every time I do a webinar, before I go out, I always think two things. One, what is my intention here? Like, what do I want, what do I want to get done today? And two is I love these people. These people are my best friends and we're going to have a lot of fun together. And so the, the part about being a mate is so exactly right because that's exactly how I approach it. It's how do I become these people's best friend? Because they're my best friends. You're yeah. so right on. Huh. But brilliant, brilliant. It's, so so then you you take this this whole idea of persona and it's figuring out the truth in you that's what you're saying here is the truth in you do you find that when you direct people it makes it a little bit easier for them because like I feel for me when I went from being really worried about status when I really was worried in the beginning because I I looked really young when I first started speaking I was I was a young manager I was a young performer I was a young writer I always so when I started speaking, 
I looked younger than I was, and I definitely looked at my peers and I looked younger than them. And so I tried to wear the ill-fitting suit. <laughs> I tried to have the 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 pictures with the glasses looking very serious. And then I felt like an imposter all the time. So every time I got on stage, every time I presented, I felt like they were going to find me out. And I feel like if I had met you earlier, Chris, <laughs> you could have advised me to say, you don't need to do any of that. And I probably would have been less nervous. Do you think that's how that goes? Yeah. Oh, for sure. As soon as you're trying to be something you're not, then that's an invitation to imposter syndrome because you you just you you know you are you know you're trying to be something you're you're not, and as soon as you relax into being who you who you actually are, and as soon as you realise that things that you might have thought were a problem, if you kind of embrace them, so like you know yourself saying that you were you know quite young. Uh, you know, relatively in that world, or didn't have the high status. Think, okay, well, what have you got going for you instead? You know, you've got this sort of friendliness, you've got this energy, you've got this curiosity, and that, that's all part of being young. So you can kind of lean into that and and own that, and that becomes your authentic persona. When you're thinking about working with someone on a presentation, how do you approach the idea of, you were talking before about good stand-up having a beginning, a middle, and end. How do you think about that when you're working on a presentation that someone's going to give that, that might feel dry? It might feel like, I'm here to deliver a bunch of information to this audience, but we know that I can't really deliver the information if they're bored to death or if they're not following me. So how do you think about storytelling and the three-act structure when it comes to giving a presentation? So if you have some information to share that's quite dry, um, you just have to personalize it. You have to find yourself in that in that information. And so with um, Caroline's TEDx talk, she talks about her own experience and that's where we're going next. And the reason I want to talk about this is because many years ago, I stood in front of an audience this big, bigger, at Central Hall, which is by the Houses of Parliament, really big Methodist space. And I was super excited about that moment because I knew that it was my big moment as a rookie voice coach and that I was going to be able to speak. And I stepped up in front of that audience and what happened was everything that could possibly go wrong did. I went too fast, I lost my words. It felt like such a horrible experience. And just as I thought it couldn't get any worse, the microphone broke. And I looked out across the room and I said in my big voice coach voice, there wasn't this much wind at the time, I have to say. <laughs> And I said in my big voice coach voice, can you hear me at the back? And someone said, speak up. And I just felt this feeling of absolute shame. That feeling of an audience looking at you and a feeling of judgment which cripples us. And I left that venue and I thought to myself, never again. Now that clearly didn't work because I'm here. That's finding the personal in it. It's, it stops it from being like the voice on high that here are all these eternal truths that I'm going to voice to you in a kind of an impersonal way. It's, it's bringing your, bringing yourself to it. So that's, that's really, really important. And 
whatever whatever it is you're talking about you can you can find something of yourself in it it could be when you first learned this or maybe you found it difficult to learn or it took you a while to really embody it and understand it or maybe you were really excited when you found out about it or maybe you were in this situation or that situation but bringing that personal thing to it and particularly if um there can be a bit of vulnerability too. Yeah, that's what's great about that story of Caroline's. Um, there she is talking about when speaking went totally wrong for her. And showing that vulnerability is a in the end is a strength, of course, because you're confident enough and comfortable enough to show this vulnerability. And you you come out looking stronger than if you try to hide any weaknesses so that personal thing is so important with whatever you're talking about and whenever I'm approaching any kind of when I'm working with someone on any kind of speech or presentation one of the first well the first thing I ask is why why are you doing this and then we uh, why are you saying all this so we find that why and then what's all this building up to so when I was working with uh, Caroline I said to her, what, what are the payoffs? And we looked at each section and identified what the payoff is. That's the thing that you're building to, that take-home point. And when you know what this section is building to, whether it's 10 seconds, 2 minutes, 10 minutes, you know what this is building to. You know literally the last thing you're going to say on this subject. It gives you great security when you don't know that what happens is you kind of you you hit the key points and then you just carry on talking and you just sort of burble on and it, it it peters out so identifying the payoffs at the end of each section is really key uh so for example a, a part of caroline's talk is a tedx talk is about looking on your voice as an instrument and with okay well what's the payoff to this whole thing What's the key takeaway? And she said, well, it's that you that you need to practice. So it's an instrument. You need to practice your instrument. We go, okay, so that's the payoff. So the, so the last words that, were, that are going to come out of her mouth in that section is all you need to do is practice. So we go, right, that's the payoff. And then so you're building to that point. So in this case, she gets – we need to talk about the chest of drawers when we're thinking about Caroline's talk, but she gets a toy guitar out of the chest of drawers, then talks about jazz players learning their instruments, your voice is like an instrument, then you're building up to all you have to do is practice. And then you go through the whole talk and you just go, what are the, where are the payoffs in this? And in that 20 minute talk, there's like probably 10 really key payoffs and so you get to one payoff, you go, boom, all you need to do is practice. Job done. Right, now I'm on the next one. I'm building up to the next one. And then you hit that payoff. And then you go, okay, that's done. And then so every time, and if you watch Caroline's talk with that in mind, there's no there's no um, waffling. There's no sense of things petering out. She hits the point, job done, starts on the next one. And... And so, as I said earlier, in stand-up, the payoffs are the ha-ha moments. But in your talk, they're the aha moments. 
there's a whole chapter on vulnerability and pain in stand-up shows. And we've just talked about at the beginning of this section on, on content and structure about the power when something is dry of, of having a personal story, having a connection to it. What is your big kind of like 30,000 foot piece of advice for someone if the personal part of it is painful or is darker? Uh, because a lot of comedy comes from that place. I, I certainly know that from an improv perspective, our job was sometimes to speak truth to power through comedy and humor. But what about if I'm building a speech for myself that I'm going to share with an audience and there is vulnerability and pain? What are what are your, kind of your high level tips for that? But there's two things. Um, first of all, the same thing. When you're sharing that vulnerable story, know what your payoff is. Know what the last line of that story is, what you're going to say. That's so, it gives you such security whenever you open your mouth to know what this is building to. So that's the first thing. But then as soon as you, if you go somewhere really vulnerable or painful or personal, then there's a great opportunity when you've done that and you've hit that last line to then completely switch energy and completely switch mood. And so we do that in Caroline's talk where right at the end, uh, it's a story of a, a friend of hers. Two lessons. We've got the power of practice. We've got the importance of the diaphragm. There's a third lesson, which is the big one. It's the one that really makes a difference. And I started to think about this lesson a couple of weeks ago, actually, because someone I'd worked with wrote to me. She wrote me an email and she said she'd been through the worst possible thing that you can imagine happening to someone. She had just got married and was on honeymoon when her husband had a heart attack and died. And she had to go back to the church they got married in and speak a eulogy for this man. In fact, she also read a poem that she'd written when they first met. And she said, on the worst day of my life, I had to pull myself together. I had to find the energy of celebration for this man that I really loved. And the only way to do it was what you taught me, the skills of breathing low and slow, taking my time, getting the control, finding the inner confidence. It was the greatest gift I could give him. And there are moments in our lives where we have to speak, not because we have something to say for us, but because we want to speak for someone else, a wedding, a eulogy. And I would suggest that in those moments, these skills matter more than ever. So she tells this very powerful story. And the point of the story is that the tools that Caroline has been sharing helped this woman get through this extraordinary challenge but then as soon straight after that so she hits the last line of that story but straight after that she turns to the chest of drawers and what you need to know in those moments is in this drawer it's breath it's air and why air matters is because we breathe our thoughts. And it's going from something very personal and very tragic to something that's kind of playful and a bit surprising. And it's, it's that 
knowing knowing when and how to shift gear and how to shift out of that moment and there's no better way really than going going into something that's really contrasting yeah it provides a bit of um that contrast provides a bit of relief from the tension of the heavier story doesn't it yeah yeah exactly yeah it's um it, it, you know I've I've watched Caroline's talk obviously when I had her on on episode twenty seven of the Mic Drop Moment I've read her books and one of the things that is really clear in watching that talk is the the emotional journey that the audience goes on and and she's talking about something that maybe an average layperson would say voice coach I don't need a voice coach and she makes it really relatable I think that's why the talk that you all worked on together has over seven and a half million views is because. <laughs> It really does take the audience on this journey and, and that uh, creating and releasing of tension is so, so wise. So I have one last question for you, Chris. Towards the beginning of this, you talked about when you were working with, with Matt, when you were working with really anybody, that you asked them, what's the deeper why behind it? What is the, what is the reason beyond sharing this information, selling some books, making a name for yourself? What's the why of this talk, of this work? And so I'm going to flip the tables on you <laughs> and I'm going to ask you in, in doing this work and in, in writing a director's guide to the art of standup in working with people and coaching them and directing them on presentations, on speeches, on standup, on theater. What is that bigger why for you? What I absolutely love is seeing a possibility in someone, seeing potential and then helping them realize it and then ultimately to be able to sit back and watch this thing happening and knowing that it's happening in that way because I was involved, because I was a catalyst and that it wouldn't have happened in quite that way without me. There's a, a great quote from uh, John Cleese, great uh, all-time great comedian and he talks about um, writing with Graham Chapman and he says that he'll suddenly, or they'd suddenly arrive at this piece of material that neither one of them would have thought of on their own. And he said that it was something that was created by a creature that the two of them formed. And that, that's what I really love in that it's not like I, I could have done it on my own either. You know, there's, it's something that happens because the two of us came together and worked together. And that's why I really like the thing that results from the creature that the two of us formed. I mean, talk about a jam-packed episode. So many great little things to pull out of that one. If you want to learn more about Chris, you can find him over at chrishead.com. And you can find his books, Creating Comedy Narratives for Stage and Screen, and A Director's Guide to the Art of Stand-Up, wherever you like to find your books. We will see you on the next episode of The Mic Drop Moment. This episode has ended, but your journey doesn't have to. Head on over to MikeGanino.com. Access all the resources and links that Mike and his guests shared today. And keep on crafting your own story. That's MikeGanino.com. Your audience is waiting. Isn't it time to find your hashtag Mike Drop Moment? 